You're listening to the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. We've been talking about who can testify for the new moon. And there are certain categories of individuals, uh, gamblers, pigeon racers, people with uncertain, uh, people, let's say people of uncertain financial standing, who aren't, who cannot bear witness to the new moon. And then as the second chapter of Rosh Hashanah picks up, we explore this in a little bit more detail. If they don't know him, that seems to be the Bet Din in Jerusalem doesn't know him. They send another with him to testify about him. And the Bartonora comments there, the another that they send is Zug Acher. They send a pair of witnesses to testify about him before Beit Din Hagadol, before the great Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is going to sanctify the new moon. But Someone in the neighbor, you know, maybe a little a local bet din in a, in a neighboring village. If that village is going to send in a witness who the bet din doesn't know, then they will send a pair of witnesses, maybe you know, a couple of elders from the village, to testify in front of the bet din that this is a reliable, this is someone they can accept evidence from. And why do they do that? Originally, they accepted testimony about the new moon from anybody. When the minim, the minim are sectarians of some kind. We're not quite sure who they are. But anyway, when the sectarians upset this, they decreed that testimony should only be accepted from, I've called them known personages, people who they knew. Now, why, why would anybody want to mess up the testimony of the new moon? Let's have a look in Vayikra. It's a famous verse in Vayikra. It's from the Parsha of Emor. Usfartem lachem machorat hashabat. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Shabbat. Miyom haviyachemet omer hatnufa. From the day you bring the omer offering, sheva shabbatot t'mimot tiena. Seven complete weeks there shall be. This is counting the omer, counting from Pesach to Shavuot. And the text, I mean, rabbinically we interpret this text as counting from the from the day after Pesach. The first day after Pesach, we begin counting the Omer. Everybody, every child in Cheda knows that. But the Pasuk doesn't say that. The Pasuk says, You shall count for yourselves from the, the day after the Shabbat. Well, is that Shabbat Pesach? Well, that's the way we interpret it. But some people in the time of the Mishnah interpreted that as the Shabbat. In other words, you had to start counting on a Monday. And of course, that means Shavu- uh, Sorry, you have to start counting on a Sunday. You have to count, start counting the day after Shabbat. So you start counting on Sunday. 
And that means Shavuot is always going to fall on a um, Shavuot seven whole weeks. So Shavuot will actually also fall on Sunday, I think, because you're going to start counting on a Sunday. You'll finish counting on Shabbat. So Shavuot will always be on a Sunday. Now, we've said earlier that the rabbis treat the calendar with great respect. We can break Shabbat to testify about the calendar. There's no question of pikuach nefesh, but nevertheless, we can break Shabbat to testify the, about the calendar as if it's a, a matter of, if you like, national life or death to get the calendar right. The mitzvah of the calendar is the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. And they were in the time of the Mishnah. It was a matter of uh, it was a matter of dispute. And the Gemara explains that some of the, um, let's say, a sectarian who thought that um, Shavuot should always be on Sunday, so that we, we should always start counting the Omer from a Sunday, would obviously want the new moon to be on Shabbat. Because if the new moon's on Shabbat, Pesach will be on Shabbat, and then the Jew whole Jewish people will start counting from Sunday. So everyone, if you like, works the same way. And the Gemara explains that these people might actually recruit witnesses to come and give false testimony in order to mess up the Bet Din. Anyway, the Mishnah says, Originally, they used to take evidence from anybody. And then when the sectarians upset this, they only took, they only took evidence from people they knew. And same with the communications. We heard that not only are the witnesses, we learned in the first chapter, not only are the witnesses coming into Jerusalem to give evidence, but after the new moon's been declared, the messengers are going to go out from Jerusalem to tell the diaspora. And the Mishnah continues. Originally, they used to light torches. These were torches. I shouldn't have translated this as torches. These are big beacons. Originally, they used to light beacons. So they passed the word from beacon to beacon. When the kutim, this is another word for some kind of sectarian when the sectarians upset this, they decreed that messengers should go out, i.e. they were no longer able to communicate via beacons. Because, of course, anybody can light a beacon. Remember that the, the month is, the lunar month strictly, is always 29 and a half days. So the month will either be 29 or 30 days. And the new moon, the, ne the first day of the next month will then either be on the 30th or the 31st day. Well, if it's going to be on the 31st day, of course, you don't need to send a beacon out. But they would light a beacon on the 30th day or the night before the 30th day to demonstrate that Rosh Chodesh had been declared. Sorry, the night after the 30th day to demonstrate the Rosh Chodesh had been declared. And of course, any sectarian even if Rosh Chodesh had not been declared, could start lighting beacons on mountains to try to confuse the diaspora as to what day of what day the Rosh Chodesh really was. So they sent out messengers. 
The Mishnah continues. How did they light the torches or the beacons? So even though we're no longer doing this, we still want to know how it happened. Erez Arukin. They used to bring these long poles of cedar. Vekanim and reeds. Ve'atse shemen and olive wood. Un oret shel pishtan. And this is stuff that falls, that this is stuff that comes off flax, comes off uh, pishtan, comes off flax. Vekorech bim shicha. And they'd tie them all together with string. Ve'olela roshahar umatsit. Bahen et ha'ur. So they, someone will go up to the top of the mountain and he light them with fire. Umolich, umolich, umevi, umale, umorid. And he'd wave them backwards and forwards and upwards and downwards. Ad shehu ro'e et chavero shehu ose ken baroshahar sheni. So he'd keep on waving them backwards and forwards until he could see someone doing the same thing at the top of the next mountain. In other words, he could see that his, his signals being received. And then, um, and similarly on top of the third mountain. So he would, it seems that they would wait until they could see that the message had been passed on, if you like, for two beacons. Well, I, that's the way I'm reading the Mishnah. The commentators think this Mishnah is so simple, it doesn't require explanation. But the way I'm reading it is that they would carry on waving until they could see the light on two further beacons, and then they could turn out, then they could turn out their light. And until the sectarians used to screw up the whole process, this is actually how they would pass the word all the way to the diaspora. And uh, next week, we'll look at the next Mishnah, which will actually tell us the names of the mountains on which the beacons were placed. And they would from Mount, you know, the, the mountains that they would use to pass the word from place to place right out to the diaspora. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Daily Mishnah podcast with Benedict.